Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will continue our series on the ongoing economic impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with AAF's President Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, we got finally, it seems like we got some good news with uh, DC moving into phase one of reopening on Friday. I mean, something to look forward to, hopefully. Um, if your idea of a, a dream come true is to sit at a patio and have a drink with a face mask on, you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> Still a long way to go, but something at least forward progress. Let's jump into things. One of the biggest stories this week has been the surging stock market, yet the Wall Street Journal recently noted that while the stock market is rebounding, consumer co- sentiment is hovering near the lowest level in nearly a decade. What do you think is driving this disparity? Consumer sentiment's all about how you do it, whereas the stock market's all about how are you going to be doing? So you're really looking at different things. The stock market's asking the question, what will it be like in uh, you know, May of 2021, whereas consumer sentiment is, how are things in May of 2020? And, and they are clearly very, very different. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's about a short term and a long term. They're just two different metrics. Um, stock markets are forward looking. I buy this stock because in the future, I will get back dividends or the opportunity to sell it for a gain. Uh, there's nothing about right now. Right now is all, all cash out. That's the bad news. You have to buy the stock. All the good news is in the future. So a stock market that looks to be rising is is, is upgrading its outlook for the future. Got it. Um, how big a role does consumer confidence play in getting the economy back on track? It's an enormously important thing. Um, you know, for uh, the, the past three years, and you know, 2017, 18, 19, uh, household spending had been uh, very consistently growing at an annual rate of somewhere between two and a half and, and two and three quarters uh, a year, you know, quarter after quarter after quarter, very solid. Labor market was going great. Uh, incomes were rising. There were no particular debt problems on the horizon. And so in, you know, January of this year, I would say things very confidently, like there is no way that the U.S. is going to have a recession because to have a recession in the household sector, which is 70% of the economy, has to go south, and there's no reason for it to go south. Well, the pandemic hits in mid-March, and we see the single largest one-month decline in consumer sentiment, and the household sector goes south. Um, Household spending in the first quarter fell uh, uh, 6.8%. All of that happened from the middle of March on, and and half of that decline is in healthcare. It's just stunning. And that's that's all consumer sentiment. So it's that powerful dragging it down, turning it around, it can be just as powerful to, to push the economy forward. Mm-hmm. I imagine that also has a lot to do with getting people back to work as well. I mean, people are not confident in their ability to you know, go to work at this time. So that that also sort of slows the economy down. There's a lot of um, uh, sort of confidence issues that we, that we face. Um, uh, some are about the, the economic future. I'm confident that I will have a job and continue to get paid. And so I'm willing to spend. And some are about health. I'm confident that I can go back to work safely and uh, conduct my, my economic affairs. So both of them are, are very closely intertwined at the moment. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. What can policymakers do to turn around confidence and in consumer confidence and confidence in the economy? Well, I, I think we continue to say the same things to some extent. 
you, you do have to pay close attention to the public health mission and the, the combination of testing and therapeutics and vaccines that will allow people to feel safe in the presence of the virus. Like whether I'm, I, I, I know who is and is not uh, infected or if I do contract the virus, there's a therapeutic that, that makes for a quick and, and relatively painless treatment or a vaccine, which would be even better. So I can walk around if other people are infected, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, catching it from them. All of those are about making people feel confident. And um, in this moment, I think there are some very specific things the government should be thinking about in terms of policies that have to do with return to the workplace. You know, workplaces will have to be different. Um, it might be social distancing and physical changes to production lines, meatpacking facilities. We've sort of seen that uh, phenomenon that takes money and they, you know, the government could help um, make those transitions um, that make people feel safer. It could be PPE, gloves and masks and things in some workplaces. Um, again, you could help with that. Testing. You know, I get tested uh, on a regular basis where I can walk into my employer and, and then everyone feels good. Uh, there, there are a lot of things on the worker side that, that can matter. And I, I think we we're seeing that the business community broadly defined is nervous about return to the workplace because they don't want to be held liable for anyone on their staff who ends up getting sick. And you don't really know if it happened in the workplace. Uh, so, you know, I think about that. Um, if, if what if you get a directive for for us, say at AAF, that says if you if you um, can't telework, you should. Well, we can't telework. We've been teleworking for two and a half months. But what if someone decides to come back to the office and then it turns out they get sick? Yeah. Is the fact that I you know didn't keep them from coming in and didn't force them to work make make AAF liable? You just need some clear guidelines on some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean. We didn't plan. I didn't plan on talking about it t- today, but uh, I did see a, lo- a couple of news articles talking about how Congress is discussing the liability shields for for companies. If you have any thoughts on that, I mean, if I think about it, it's a real issue because I mean, I'm not actually the world's most risk averse person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think a lot about things like that, but it has come up, and so I think, okay, th- this is a this is a real issue. Um, you can deal with that in a number of ways. I mean, you can go to the extreme and say no business is liable for anything. Mm-hmm. That's probably too strong, right? Because you 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 do want businesses who are uh, willfully uh, negligent or um, uh, otherwise um, not a good employer to to not get off the hook completely. Or you could just simply say, okay, here's a standard. This is what a uh, standard for um, workplace safety looks like in this environment. You hit that standard. You're fine. There are a lot of ways to configure this, and I, I think I think most people would like the, the narrowest configuration that works to be the kind of thing Congress does. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's turn to Title Four of the CARES Act. Last week, great uh, reading, great <laughs> reading. Everyone should get a copy and just right. read along. <laughs> uh, even better, you're going to be testifying on this topic to the Senate yeah. Banking Committee next week, so they can yeah. just tune into to, to that uh, live stream to see you in action. But last week, we did talk about the money from the CARES Act that the Treasury has not yet distributed. In a nutshell, what's the problem here? What what needs to happen to get the money to those who need it? In a nutshell, I don't know. And that's what I'm going to tell the Senate Banking Committee. Um, <laughs> you know, we know that, for example, the Federal Reserve uh, used its own authorities to set up emergency facilities, and it undertook dramatic action, you know, quantitative easing, as much for as long as possible, interest rates at zero, um, uh, a commercial paper facility where you can come and give commercial paper to the Federal Reserve and they'll give you money. And 
they, they had those existing authorities and they, they had done these things back in 2007, 2008. They, they set them up quickly. They got, you know, an enormous amount, trillions of dollars literally out the door. Um, so so they, they're capable of that. Treasury, in combination with the Small Business Administration, has gotten $500 billion in paycheck protection program money out the door. That's the small business program where if you get a loan and you use it to support your employees, it gets forgiven. So Treasury is capable of, of moving quickly at getting large sums of money out the door. The Title IV uh, facilities under the CARES Act are the Treasury working with the Federal Reserve to do Main Street lending program, for example, a loan program for larger um, firms, or the, the state municipality facility, which is a, 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 a place where you can take your uh, state debt and get, get cash back from the Federal Reserve. So um, collectively, they had $500 billion to do these things, and they've gotten $1.8 billion out the door. I don't know why. Wow. Um, so it, both these actors seem capable of large-scale action on a short timetable, but it's not happening. And, mm -hmm. and we need to find out why. Yeah. What impact do you think this delay has had on the economy? I mean, are specific businesses seeing some hurt? What's going on? Um, the fear, of course, is that we are losing um, firms, uh, you know, invisibly and in the night because they didn't get assistance and and we just don't know it, and, and we see the reflection of it in these large, continuing large claims for uh, unemployment insurance. So we had another 2.1 million people in the past week sign up for unemployment insurance. Again, the numbers have become just so big, people forget that previously, the largest number in a week was 600,000 back in 2007-8. So we're still you know, at three times that. Um, and then 40 million people have applied for unemployment insurance since you know, the, the pandemic hit. So that suspects that out there, there's some some businesses that are in real trouble and, and the money's not going out um, in the best of circumstances. They had enough cash in the bank that they've survived to now, but it can't last forever. And you want to be able to get these loans out the door. Hmm. OK, so let's turn to our final discussion for today. Um, as we discuss reopening the economy, we are hearing more about the idea of a phase four legislative package. But it doesn't seem clear when this would happen or what would be included. Could you give us an overview about what is happening with this? Um, I, I think that there are four things that are clearly on the table and then a thousand other suggestions every day, right? But, but the four core elements remain uh, business liability. That's a, 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 an ask by the Senate, in particular Senate Republicans must have this in the next bill. Uh, the corresponding must have for the Democrats is something for states and localities. And so those those are sort of like, you give me this, I'll do that classic legislative horse trading. Uh, second element that's important, third element, I guess, important is um, the $600 bonus uh, on top of unemployment insurance that was provided by the CARES Act and which is, is great if the policy is, please stay home, don't go to work, but is way too big if the policy is, we'd like people to go back to work. And so the future of that is, is part of this, um, this next uh, round of legislation for sure. And then there's the topic of Tuesday's uh, hearing, which is these um, lending facilities that the Federal Reserve will run using backing by the Treasury. And, you know, I think Republicans want to want to see what those could be. So suppose you put $500 billion out there and you, you manage to, to sort of turn it into $3 trillion in loans. And that's that's a lot of new new support for the economy. 
that is coming from the CARES Act. It's still there. And you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You don't need to come up with a, a big bill. You instead need to take on these other targeted things. If, on the other hand, we, we just gave $500 billion and the Treasury somehow managed to bury it under 15th Street and they've lost it and it's never going out, well, then we still have a big problem that has to be fixed. So that needs to get resolved one way or another. So we don't what you need to do. So what about one of your favorite topics, and that is the bipartisan support for infrastructure spending? Do you? <laughs> it seems like we're always having one of those infrastructure week type things. Um, do you think an infrastructure package would be part of a phase four deal? Uh, you wrote recently about this. How, how might infrastructure fit into a COVID-19 economic response? I think it could be part of the response. I, I get, what I do not like is when people say we need $2 trillion in infrastructure, they pick a very big number and, and they, a, a nice sounding word, infrastructure. And we've seen what happens when you do that. Everybody wants a piece of the two trillion. Everything becomes infrastructure, right? Like my infrastructure is Cabernet Sauvignon. So please, <laughs> let's, let's spend some money on infrastructure, okay? Um, no, that's, that's crazy. So, so what would make sense would be to have some fairly disciplined funding for some some infrastructure projects that would genuinely help big chunks of the economy. Like, you know, my favorite example is a modern air traffic control system that would allow for a long time in the future for planes to operate safely with, with, with less distance between them, and you could actually improve the efficiency of the supply chain. So that would be a sensible thing to do. It wouldn't happen overnight, so it would take time, but there would also be long-term benefits. That's useful right now, if you can find things like that, because if you look at most of the forecasts for the recovery, you get a big bounce back in the third quarter, and then it sort of slows down. And we get to the end of 2021 next year, and we're still not back to the level of uh, activity we had in January of this year. Unemployment rate remains elevated somewhere you know, in the eights or, or, or so. And so you need to deal with that problem. So if you start now on an infrastructure uh, effort, it arrives in time for that problem. It doesn't do any good for the third quarter, and it, and and Often infrastructure gets oversold as stimulus. We don't want that idea. That's not going to happen. Okay. Well, I have to ask, any uh, fun wine tastings this, uh, coming up this weekend? No. Uh, well, yes. There will, there will be um, two wine tastings, one on Friday night, one on Saturday night. M must do those. But in addition, on Sunday, um, my granddaughter will have her second birthday, and okay. um, there will be a Zoom birthday party. So, um, you know. So we've covered graduations, weddings, and now birthday parties on Zoom. Yeah, um, it's uh, from Z to Z or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, thanks again for taking the time, um, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Great, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.